This is World to Win, bringing you the latest news and analysis from a socialist perspective. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of World to Win. I've been here for a couple of weeks, so I'm really excited about this episode and, of course, really excited to see Toya again. How are you doing, Toya? Yara, I've missed you so much. It's so great to see you. I'm back. I'm excited to be back. I just went on vacation. I feel, you know, refreshed. Um, so I'm really excited for this episode, too, because we're talking to one of my favorite guests. He's a repeat. Um, I'm very excited for him to be here today. Don't spoil it. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, but yeah, before, I know now now it's like we've built it up so much. Um, but before we tell you who we have with us, please share this with everyone that you know, because we're doing kind of like a more theoretical episode this time, which personally... I are my favorites. I feel like it's such an easy way to kind of learn theory instead of reading so much, <laughs> so many words about it. Um, and especially when these words were written so long ago that sometimes it's quite difficult to understand. And chatting about it is always such a great way to understand. So share it with everyone, everyone that you know. And of course, subscribe to our channel and click the bell button so you're notified whenever we post a new video or go, go live. So. Now that we've got out of the way, this episode is going to be really, really interesting um, because, you know, you know, we, we are Trotskyists. We call ourselves Trotskyists. And uh, the Russian revolutionary and Marxist Leon Trotsky, who kind of we follow, uh, he's got this theory of permanent revolution, which I think is a theory that kind of has this uh, bad name, bad reputation. And I think a lot of people don't really understand what it actually means. So really exciting to kind of delve into it and see what it actually means and when we talk about theory we don't mean you know philosophy in the abstract we don't mean it in an academic sense we talking about developing and sharpening ideas that can actually change the world that is what we talk about when you say theory and having this the correct theory is absolutely essential for analyzing a consistently changing world and kind of drawing the best strategy and also the best tactics to advance the struggle, uh, the struggle of the working class, the struggle of the oppressed. Even Lenin said that without revolutionary theory, there can be no revolutionary mo movement. And as a cornerstone of genuine Marxism, the theory of permanent revolution is something that kind of remains with enormous relevance to today. And in essence, it's a theory of how different parts of the world at different stages of capitalist development can get to that stage of revolution. So obviously really important, especially now when we're so kind of like aware of the gaps that we have between different parts of the world, especially, you know, with COVID and everything that's going on. And, you know, these ideas, we have to put it out there. These ideas were drawn out 100 years ago and that was a very different world situation to today. So it's not enough to just quote it. We need to understand it and then we need to kind of dynamically apply it to our reality, uh, which is what we're gonna do today. So very, very exciting. And to clarify this history of how this theory was developed, first of all, and how we apply it today, and also why it's so important for socialists like us today, I'm really excited to welcome, uh, and I completely agree with Toya, one of our favorite Waldoin veterans. So how are you doing, Rob, from the ISA in Russia? Uh, hi, both of you. It's good to be back. So how, how have you been, Rob? Yeah, what have you been up to? 
we're, we've been good. I mean, spring always comes late to uh, Russia. But with the spring, we have the fine weather. We're able to go out onto the streets doing a bit of campaigning, trying to make sure that the comrades don't get arrested in the course of it. We're doing a bit of work in organising fast food workers, and that's looking as if it's doing pretty good. We've been getting people from other cities contact us, want to work with us. And, of course, we're helping our new comrades in Belarus to start to um, work there. So, yes, things, things are good and they're very busy. Sounds really busy and also like it's always amazing to hear what the what the members in Russia are doing because the situation there is kind of like indescribable for anyone who is uh, in a different kind of place that uh, is maybe a bit more you know lenient <laughs> when it comes to protesting so like really good to hear to, to hear about it and like how much work you're doing as well um, but I think today obviously we're, we're going to talk more about the theory behind it which I think even in the context of like talking about where Russia is, is super important. But before we go into kind of applying it to today, I want to go back to kind of like understand the context uh, that Trotsky developed the theory of the permanent revolution. So I think I think it's really fair to say that the ideas were really kind of innovative and that they went against many of the common conceptions that Marxists had at the time. And I think it's also kind of like the way that revolution was talked about, where and when it was likely to develop, and the role of the working class versus the role of the bourgeoisie was kind of really different to what the permanent revolution was saying. So before we go into kind of like the actual theory, before we go into how we applied for today, can you give us a, a sense of what were the dominant ideas uh, in the socialist movement at the time? Well, I think, yes, you said that the theory of permanent revolution was an innovation for the time, but I think they're very relevant for today. They're just as modern and applicable today as they were when Trotsky first raised them. The reality is that in many countries, the capitalist class hasn't been able to solve many of the basic questions that it should have once solved. Land reform, for example, is still desperately, desperately needed in India. The national question has not been solved. You have the problem with the Yugas in China. You have the Tigrayan people in Ethiopia under violent attack. There are still major problems in Europe, in Catalonia, in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, for example. And you don't have stable bourgeois democracy in many countries. You can talk about just recently the protests that have taken place in Belarus, in Colombia, in Myanmar. And this is what Trotsky's theory of permanent revolution is all about. How do we resolve these questions in the modern world? And I think it's worth remembering that actually Marx first raised the idea of what he called the permanence of revolution, which he based on his experience of the 1848 revolutions in Europe, particularly in France. Because he explained then how the revolution developed so quickly, even the most moderate middle classes found themselves following uh, the proletariat and the proletariat during the course of events began to rally around revolutionary socialism. And that, if you like, is uh, 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 the very beginnings or a uh, very, very basic under understanding of what we mean by the theory of permanent revolution. But I think if we go on a bit further there, we see that, uh, of course, many in the social democratic movement which, of course, by the beginning of the 20th century had gained mass support in countries such as Germany. Many of the people didn't understand what Marx was getting at and certainly didn't go as far as uh, Lenin and Trotsky did uh, in their later position. 
The German Social Democrats, for example, they had a mass organization. They had deputies in parliament, trade unions under the control. Many of their representatives had been integrated into the system. They argued that capitalism could be reformed into socialism, bit by bit. We always used to say when we heard that, if you try and declaw a tiger bit by bit, you will get hurt. And that's what happens if you try and reform capitalism when it's in a severe crisis. Other socialists had a more schematic, mechanistic interpretation of Marx's works. Marx said, and he, of course he was correct, that society develops from feudalism to capitalism to socialism. Now they interpreted that to mean that uh, society develops step by step. In other words, that there are stages, what we call the theory of stages or the stagist approach. I'll talk a bit about that a bit later maybe. But um, they saw as a result of that that the main task of socialists was to help the capitalists first to develop their revolution and then they could uh, start fighting for socialism. And we've seen that in the, in the last 50 years in many, many countries when communist parties have used that stages theory uh, to delay the actual fight for socialism itself. And of course, those two ideas contradicted the whole position of Marx and Engels. They argued the task of the proletariat is to fight for political power. This was a position that was held by revolutionaries such as Lenin and Trotsky, even though for a short period they formulated it in a, in a bit of a different way. So excited you're here to talk about this, Rob. Like I said, I always love when you're on the show. You have such a um, an easy way to explain some of these deeper ideas. You know, Yara was explaining that uh, this is a more theoretical episode, but, um, you know, we don't want to make it seem like it's something that you have to study. And so having you on to explain the process of how these ideas came to be, I think are super important. And, you know, it's one of the, the parts of being a, um, you know, in a Marxist organization as we analyze things um, as they progress and we look at history and we, we study things of the past to learn how we can act in the future. And of course, you know, as Yara said, this, uh, these ideas were created 100 years ago, but we had capitalism 100 years ago and we still have capitalism today. So we're still fighting that same fight. Um, but Trotsky himself, you know, he didn't just come to this idea out of nowhere either. He was studying things from his history and, and, and of his past to get him to the conclusions um, uh, of permanent revolution. And so what I'm referencing is the 1905 revolution in Russia. You know, the 1917, that's the famous one. That was the very successful one. But many people are unaware that there was... Um, uh, you know, something happening in 1905 as well. So can you talk a little bit how um, Trotsky used the experiences of that time to help him uh, draw his conclusions? Well, yes, of course. I mean, 1905, as you said, was the first revolution in, in Russia. And uh, it, it was widespread. I live in Moscow. And uh, I live just down the road from the region where the 1905 revolution took place. Uh, and there's a big statue to the uh, heroes of that time. And... It was a revolution that um, taught Trotsky, uh, taught is perhaps not the correct word, but Trotsky used the experience of the revolution to actually develop and find home the theory that he developed during the course of uh, that year. 1905, we should remember, started as an almost naive plea by thousands of workers 
who were led by an unconventional priest, this Father Gapon, who some say was a, a Tsarist agent. He led the workers on a demonstration to deliver a petition to the Tsar in his palace, asking the father of the people to come out and help them. And of course, the Tsar wasn't so friendly. He sent his troops out. They fired on the demonstration. Hundreds were killed. And that since then has been called Bloody Sunday. This discontent was driven by the dire poverty of the peasantry, the oppression of the national minorities, and there were many, many, and there still are in Russia. And it followed on from a wave of worker strikes which started in the south in the Caucasus uh, around the oil fields in uh, Baku before reaching Petrograd. And of course it was all exasperated by the disastrous Russo-Japanese war in which the Tsar lost his whole Pacific fleet almost in one day. You also had a layer, of course, of the developing middle class and the new bourgeois who were fed up and who couldn't exist within the straitjacket of the old Tsarist autocratic system. Uh, system. So as you had the demonstrations, the peasant uprising, the strike spreading across Russia, they developed eventually by October into an all-out general strike in Petrograd itself. And during the course of that, you had the establishment of a Petrograd Soviet. Soviet in Russian is just the word for a council. It was a council of workers' deputies, workers' representatives, which was formed, it met regularly, and it took the leadership of the movement. And of course, it should be commented on that uh, Trotsky became the president of that uh, workers' Soviet. And the working class was still a small proportion of the Russian population at the time. Compared to the working class in the industrialized countries today, it was a very, very small proportion. But it stepped up, it organized, and it took the leading role in that uh, revolution. And what was the position of the bourgeois, the liberal bourgeois? They, it was supposed to be their revolution. It was supposed to be the revolution to end autocracy, to bring about elements of democracy, to help solve the national question. They were more worried, more frightened of the working class and the peasantry movement than they were of the autocracy. So they spent the whole year trying to uh, cuddle up to the uh, autocracy. They, In the run-up to the revolution, they'd organized a whole series of banquets where they invited leading figures from the autocracy and liberal society to raise money um, to, to argue for reforms, democratic reforms. And of course, the Tsar completely ignored them. And it was out of these experiences that Trotsky developed his theory of permanent revolution. And actually, his theory of permanent revolution is actually, uh, it, it, it sounds difficult, but if you think about it, it's not, that, uh, it's not that difficult to grasp. I'll just point out some of the key features of it. In countries with underdeveloped capitalism, the bourgeois class is too weak to achieve its own democratic and national emancipation. Only the working class leading the nation with the support of the peasantry can do this. The land and the national question can only be solved by an alliance between the workers and peasantry under the leadership of a workers' revolutionary party, but only by conducting an irreconcilable struggle against the national liberal bourgeoisie. If the working class led by the revolutionary party comes to power, in implementing the task of the democratic revolution, it soon confronts the questions of bourgeois property. The democratic revolution becomes a socialist revolution, and it therefore becomes permanent. And actually, in early, uh, in early uh, descriptions, they called it not permanent, but unbroken. It was an unbroken revolution that continued. A socialist revolution 
whether in a backward or a long-established capitalist country, clashes with national limitations. Therefore, it has to spread internationally. The socialist revolution begins on the national arena, it unfolds on the international, and is completed on the world arena. And if you look just at one or two examples from Myanmar today, you see the situation there. If the masses in Myanmar, who are fighting heroically, want to defeat the army, one of the main things they have to do is to break the economic might of the army, the big conglomerates that the army controls that it gets its income from. It's going from democratic rights into economic rights. And if Myanmar wants to win and survive as a new democratic society, it also has to confront the situation with its neighbours and, of course, the situation in China. So it becomes an international revolution that is, is needed. And I think in that sense, we see that the revolution of 100 years ago is still extremely relevant for today. Thank you, Rob. I think this is like a really good and concise explanation to what the permanent revolution is. And I also think, you know, in the last 10 years, especially, I think it's quite instinctive for a lot of people to see how that works. We've seen kind of like revolutions spread around and we're seeing that kind of how you can't can divide the world when you talk about revolution and how the consciousness of the working class is, uh, and especially now, a hundred years after, much more kind of unified. Um, but I was wondering if, if we're still a hundred years ago. Uh, obviously, these ideas uh, were, like, like, like you said, were kind of influenced by the 1905 revolution. But did they have any impact on the 1917 revolution as well? Well, they did, because 1917 was actually the implementation of the permanent revolution into life. And it came as a shock to some of even the uh, leading uh, Marxists of the time. We should remember that the revolution in February 1917 broke out. It was initiated by a strike of women textile workers. And basically the demands of the protesters, they wanted an end to the killing fields at the First World War. They wanted wages and a shorter working week. The peasantry wanted the peasantry and the soldiers. They wanted land so that they could go and uh, grow enough food to uh, feed the families. And overwhelmingly, the revolutionary workers, the soldiers, and the peasants were demanding an end to the monarchy. And what came into power in February of 1917 was a provisional government. It was a coalition of pro-capitalist parties, and it included social revolutionaries and it included Mensheviks. Uh, even even some Mensheviks who claimed uh, to be quite left-wing. But they failed to deliver on any of these uh, promises. They didn't end the war. They didn't give um, uh, Finland the right to self-determination, for example. They didn't distribute the land. And uh, every time they were asked to do that, they were told, wait until we have a constituent assembly formed at the end of the year. And as it became close to the Constituent Assembly, the program that they developed made quite clear that they were not going to implement anything in support of the uh, ordinary uh, working people, the peasants, the soldiers, and so on. And what we saw in effect was the Mensheviks, who called themselves Marxists, who called themselves revolutionaries, they actually implemented this stages or the, this stages theory. They they thought that you should prop up, prop up a capitalist government allow the capitalist government to introduce democracy, and then at some time in the, in the future, maybe we can start the fight for socialist ideas, because after all, Russia is a backward country. I think we also have to understand that the Bolshevik party wasn't a monolith. 
There were different trends within the Bolshevik party. There were right-wing Bolsheviks, people like Kamenev and Stalin, who were editors of Pravda at the time. They declared their support for the provisional government, in brackets, in as far as it opposes counter-revolution. Now, they immediately came into conflict with a whole wide layer of revolutionary workers from the revolutionary regions of Petrograd, such as Weiburg, the revolutionary sailors from Kronstadt, layers of the um, the soldiers who had been uh, uh, who had been in, inspired by revolutionary um, agitation and so on, who understood almost instinctively that the provisional government was not their government, that you had to carry on the fight, and the people that represented that carry, uh, carrying on of the struggle was Lenin when he returned to uh, Russia in April of 1917 and a little bit later when he was eventually released from the British um, concentration camp in Canada, Trotsky when he arrived in, in uh, Russia. And what did they say? Lenin was a brilliant theoretician. He built the Bolshevik party, but I do think that he had a little bit of a woolly position on this question before the revolution itself started. And that's very uncharacteristic for him because he was usually very, very sharp. What was his position? Before, he, before the revolution broke out, his position was you should fight for a socialist revolution, but he thought that the fight would be under the leadership of the working class in alliance with the peasantry. And what it actually implied was that at the end of the day, the peasantry, which is far stronger in numbers, would overwhelm the working class in this. But Lenin was always a, a, a practitioner. He used to say, didn't he, that uh, he used to quote Goethe. Uh, Goethe who said, theory is grey, my friend, but the tree of life is ever green. And as soon as Lenin saw how the Russian Revolution was developing, he adapted and he changed his position. And he no longer said that you needed an alliance of the workers and the peasantry. He said the workers have to take the lead in this revolution. And when he said that in April, and he had the liberal bourgeois all angry with him, and he had the right wing in the Bolshevik party also upset, but he had the workers and the sailors and the soldiers were supporting him, Many accused him of taking on a Trotsky's position. And in reality, that is what had happened because Trotsky's position all along had been there should be an alliance of the working class and the peasantry under the leadership of the working class, which is a very fundamental point. It's not a general alliance of all classes together, but one that is led by the working class. And so when Lenin came back, he, he, uh, he spoke he said that there should be no confidence in the provisional government, that the um, working class should organise against the provisional government and uh, struggle for the overthrow of capitalism in, uh, in Russia itself. And I think that it's very important to understand that because what happened later in other countries is an indication of how things shouldn't happen. So in other words, the Bolshevik position became one. Uh, the Bolsheviks should lead the struggle for the bourgeois democratic revolution, for democratic rights, and in the process they should also demand the socialist demands that came out of it. So that when the, power, when the Bolsheviks took power, actually that's an incorrect formulation, the Soviets took power under the leadership of the Bolshevik party. When the Soviets took power and the Soviet government was formed, they ended the war, they granted self-determination, they re redistributed land, 
They passed the factories into workers' control. They gave women equal rights. They ended discrimination against uh, homosexuals, for example, and a whole number of other very, very progressive demands, not over a period of years, but in the course of months to demonstrate how the democratic revolution turned into a socialist revolution. I love hearing stories of people kind of learning in the moment. You know, Lenin thought one thing and then as it was playing out, he realized he was wrong and he adopted a new a new take on the situation. I love that, you know, uh, it's kind of like a humbling story, if you will. But also you were emphasizing the focus that needed to be made and still needs to be made today on the working class. Um, and I, I, I'm glad that you highlighted that. I think that's very important. And these lessons that we're talking about, though, they don't just apply to Russia, you know, during that time. You mentioned even in current times, Myanmar, for example, but, you know, a hundred or so years ago, um, we saw uh, China go through a revolution. Um, and yeah, although that was a failed revolution, a lot of the theory and lessons um, can be applied to what happened there. Um, and the question of the Chinese Revolution, I think, is actually coming around a lot um, with young people in particular, um, asking about, uh, you know, what happened there. So can you explain, um, you know, what were the mistakes that were made in the Chinese Revolution? Well, yes, I mean, um, as you say, the the lessons from the permanent revolution are extremely relevant today. We met, we, we used them in the intervention that we had in Belarus, in Myanmar, in Myanmar, the issues come up, in a whole number of other countries, these issues are coming up time after time after time. But as you say, the issue of the Chinese revolution, the revolutionary events in China in 25 to 27, were actually, they were a tragedy because if there had been a victory for the Chinese revolution then, it would have changed the world in many, many ways. First of all, uh, it would have stopped the Stalin's degeneration in Russia itself. It would have put a block on that. It would have inspired revolution in other countries. We could have been talking about a global revolution. But of course, that didn't happen. And we have to understand why, so that we don't make the same mistakes. And I think the first thing to point out is when the event started, I think it was in, uh, late, uh, in the middle of uh, 1925, you already had had the death of Lenin. Trotsky was being eased out of influence within the Bolshevik Party. I wouldn't say that the whole process had been uh, carried through to the end, but the process had started and so on. And that the Chinese Communist Party, which at one time had been quite a powerful force, um, it even had, I think, at the beginning of the uh, 20s, something like 60,000 members. It was a significant force, even in the big country. But unfortunately, it was being advised and pressured by the start by the Comintern, the Communist International, which had already started a process of Stalinist degeneration alongside the Stalinist degeneration that had started within the Russian Revolution itself. And the argument was, at least the Stalinist said, that China is a backward country. It was an a former imperialist colony which had been very, hit, very hard hit by imperialism, particularly the British uh, imperialists with their gunboat diplomacy and their opium wars. It was a largely peasant country, they argued, but then so was Russia. And in China, you had seen the development very quickly of a relatively small in numbers, but a very militant working class. 
that was uh, beginning to play the same role that was uh, played by the Russian working class in the period before the Russian Revolution. You had a whole period of students and worker protests. And then in the middle of June 1925, British and French machine gunners shot down dozens of strikers. And by doing so, they provoked a 40-month-long uprising in Canton. The result of the uprising was imperialism was paralysed. The workers had elements of workers' control over society. For example, they shut down the opium dens. They shut down the gambling joints. They set up an, an improvised Soviet or something that was very similar to the Russian Soviets. But the Communist Party that in Russia would have been stepped into the Soviets and used the Soviets to lead the revolution, the Chinese Communist Party, under the influence of the Stalinists, had a different position. They went back to uh, the position. They said that um, uh, the Communist Party support, should support the Kuomintang, which was the bourgeois nationalists, quite a reactionary party led by Chiang Kai-shek. The Communist Party argued that the task in China was to establish a block of four classes, the workers, the national capitalists, the peasantry, and the urban petty bourgeois. I suppose it's what you could call Manchurism with Chinese characteristics, if you want to uh, be a bit flippant about it. The, the communists were told to join the Kuomintang. The Kuomintang was asked to join the Kuomintang. Stalin praised the revolutionary Kuomintang and its revolutionary leadership. But behind this deception, the counter-revolution was raising its head. Gradually, the Kuomintang was moving to crush the workers' movement. And in March 26, Chiang Kai-shek, leader of the Kuomintang, banned workers' organisations, executed 300 communists, and established a military dictatorship across Canton. In other words, he beheaded the revolution because of the Menshevik class collaborationist tactics and strategy of the of the Chinese Communist Party under the influence of the Stalinized Comintern. And of course, what happened later uh, was maybe added further tragedy to the whole story because the need for revolutionary change never died. The but the national bourgeois was never strong enough to carry out their own revolution in China. So that after the Second World War, when the Kuomintang was weakened by the defeats of the war and so on, Mao was able to lead his Red Army. He redistributed land, it is true, on the way to take over the country. But when he took it over, he established a Stalinist-style one-party dictatorship. And, of course, with time we know that there, although there were elements of uh, planning in uh, China, that uh, it's now gonna, it's now re-established uh, capitalism, it's become an imperialist power. And in a number of countries in that part of the world, people are getting very, very angry at the so-called communists in China who are acting against the interests of the working class. And the Stalinists never learnt any lessons from this catastrophe. They continued to subjugate the workers' struggle to that of the bourgeoisie. They did it in Spain and betrayed the Spanish Revolution. They did it in France. They did it in a whole number of other countries. They did it in Chile in uh, 1973 and so on. And uh, it's led to a whole number of uh, catastrophes to the working class over the ages. This is really interesting, and I think it's always good to kind of think about the things that confirm the theory. But on the other hand, like... I think there's a few instances where we can point at, say, doesn't that kind of refute? So, like, you know, we have kind of like the post-colonial world um, and like the neo-colonial world. 
uh, or developing world, however you want to call it. And we've seen a lot of industrialization and also significant economic development, obviously not as much as we've seen in other places, but we have seen some progress in the neocolonial world. So doesn't that in some way kind of disprove the theory of permanent revolution? Um, kind of that the fact that they can be developed on a capitalist basis? Or is there more to it than that? I don't think so. I don't think anybody would disagree that the world, including many neo-colonial countries, has developed in the last hundred years. We've seen new technologies, new communications, new medicines, and they all show the potential areas for humanity to develop if rationally managed in a sustainable way. But despite all the efforts of the medical staff, the frontline workers and the scientific community to combat the virus, capitalism still cannot ensure all countries get the vaccines they need. Um, I can give a couple of examples. Maybe the first one is an example of the permanent revolution in reverse. 30 years ago, the Stalinist states of Russia and Eastern Europe collapsed. The bureaucratic mismanaged planned economy was dismantled and capitalism was restored. And yet if you look over the whole wave of parts of uh, Eastern Europe, Belarus, Russia, Azerbaijan, a whole number of other countries, the new capitalist class has been too weak to establish stable democratic systems. The economies are more akin to the neo-colonial world, dependent on raw material exports. And the national question and imperialist intervention have caused many wars in the region. And if you want a more, if you like a more classical example, let's go back to Myanmar one of the poorest countries in Asia. Now it's true that Myanmar in the last 10 years, I think since 2008, has been an exception. It has experienced economic growth. But the growth has been on the basis of the imperialist countries using the cheap labor in Myanmar for the textile industry and so on, because it's now cheaper than using Chinese labor. And it's been linked to the uh, repression of trade union rights. It's been linked to the arrest of the journalists. And the NLD government that the world uh, bourgeois seem to uh, uh, see as a, uh, as a hero at the moment could only govern with the tacit agreement of the military. It was unable to solve the national question and in fact was in involved in brutal attacks on the Rohingyas a few years back. And so if you look at what is happening now, uh, the heroic uprising against the Tatmadaw, the uh, Myanmar army, it can win. But it can only win if the working class step to the forefront to take the political lead. Because if, it, if they lead the leadership of the struggle in the hands of the national unity government, it's already making a mess of it. It's already not involving the national, uh, the national groups, the different ethnic groups, in a way that is democratic. It has already started to have negotiations with the Chinese regime about how Chinese interests can be defended in the country. Uh, it, 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 it won't dare to combat the army by combating the military economy that is set up that finances the army. And of course, it won't stand up to the multinational uh, companies, including companies like Chevron and Total, the oil companies, that have just said that they're going to uh, cut paying dividends to the uh, uh, Myanmar military, but at the same time, they're giving all the money they get from the sale of oil and gas. And unless the working class step up to take the leadership in this struggle, and of course, it's not an easy task to do, unless it guarantees national um, um, uh, self-determination, uh, 
unless it uh, guarantees the right of workers to form trade unions, introduction of a minimum wage, uh, and all the other issues that uh, come across, then unfortunately the most likely perspective is that the country will develop into a civil war situation along the lines of what happened in Syria were 10 years ago after the popular uprising there against the Assad government. So yes, I think it's, it's very relevant today. And uh, I, I think it would be very, uh, very wrong of us to ignore the lessons. I love how we're able to take this discussion into a historical context and a current day context. I think that's so important. Um, so on that theme, before you mentioned, um, you know, 100 years ago, they had uh, this sort of stagist approach. Um, and you talked about how that was incorrect. Um, do we still see this approach today? Well, you do, but there's two sides to this question. There are still a few communist parties in the world that still have a certain base amongst the uh, population and the working class. And I think in every case, they still have a fundamentally Menshevik uh, path. Uh, notwithstanding their very radical um, rhetoric sometimes. For example, the Greek Communist Party. It calls for a revolutionary workers' and people's front. The South African Communist Party is part of the coalition government with the corrupt capitalist ANC. The Communist Party of India, Marxist-Leninist, which is in power in some of the uh, regions, according to its programme, it wages a relentless battle against reformism, revisionism, liquidationism, bourgeois liberalism, anarchism and all other erroneous ideas and trends, both inside and outside the party. Yet, wait for it, it says the current stage of the uh, process is the People's Democratic Revolution with the Agrarian Revolution as its actors. In other words, socialism is in the future. And I think, of course, most of these organizations are now exceptions to the rule. In the vast majority of countries, unfortunately, most political parties and many trade union leaders have bought into the neoliberal ideology. In many ways, we have to restore a fighting tradition of the labor movement. It has to be reestablished by a new generation. But there's another side to this coin. Because this new generation, these new layers that are coming into struggle as part of a huge subterranean process, it, it, it's happening all over the world now. The number of protests, the number of strikes that are developing, the number of uprisings, the length and determination of the uprisings is getting quite remarkable, as you can see in, uh, in, uh, in Chile, in, uh, in Myanmar, in Colombia, in, in Belarus, and so on. And it's bringing uh, youth onto the streets. It's bringing women onto the streets in the defence of their rights. And I think it is inevitable that as these masses move into struggle, inevitably a large lay will initially, in the absence of a strong left-wing presence, start with the illusions in the liberal bourgeoisie. We saw it in the illusions that the masses had in Belarus with Tikhonovskaya, in the early days with, um, with the um, NUG government in, in Myanmar and so on. But as the process develops, you see a layer of these people are beginning to draw conclusions of uh, no longer can we trust these governments. And it's, uh, it, it, it's beginning to happen in Myanmar at the moment, particularly amongst youth who are beginning to uh, lose their illusions in the NUG uh, government and so on. And they, those layers will look for a more working class socialist alternative. And that's the second side of it. It's, there are some old parties that are not going to build a real revolutionary process. We can uh, push them to one side, in my opinion, in most, in most countries. Of course, it's not everywhere. But 
In other places, you have new layers, new generations coming through into struggle, and they will have illusions. But we have to find those people within those masses that are, uh, are going further and drawing the right conclusions to organize them so that we can establish organizations, can give a working class lead to these processes and lead them to victory in the future. I think this is really interesting. And I know we talked a lot about kind of various things that are relevant um, with kind of like the permanent revolution. The things that are relevant to today and I think it's, it's really good that we talked about them but I want to ask you kind of like more specifically so now in kind of like a post COVID outbreak world where we've seen kind of the gaps getting bigger and bigger what is specifically the relevance of the theory of the permanent revolution to today and especially for socialists today how we explain kind of uh, the reality and how we explain the strategy of our revolution based on that well, I think, of course, it's, it's perhaps, perhaps a bit premature to talk about a post-COVID world uh, already happening, which I'm sure is not what you mean. But the disease, because of the failures of capitalism, has continued to ravage large parts of the world. That in itself is an indication that there can be no national solution in this kind of situation. Whatever we do, it has to be an international struggle, which is a key part of permanent revolution. And it's in contrast with the Stalinists, who talked about there being a national road to socialism in many, many different countries. And that, together with the unfolding economic crisis, which although it seems to have uh, stepped back a little bit because of the stimuli, has turned the whole world upside down. It's unbelievable almost that Biden, who was an unrelenting corporate neoliberal a year ago, could now be pumping trillions of dollars into the US economy and as a result, some of that money is feeding through into the rest of the world economy. That is causing the situation where some left-wingers are creating illusions that somehow these measures or some form of measure similar to this with new economic theories being developed can somehow solve the capitalist world's problems. But we shouldn't have any illusions in that. There, will be, there may be some short-term gains, if you like, but a long-term solution is not possible in this situation. We've already seen a dramatic increase in inequality. Inequality between rich and poor within each country. Inequality between rich and poor countries. We've seen, uh, um, we've seen international tensions increasing dramatically. Just in Europe alone in the last week, another country, Belarus, has now joined the East Ukraine as a no-fly zone. If you look at the map of flights across Europe, there is a whole area in the middle of Eastern Europe where there are no aircraft flying over it. And it's an area the size of Germany and France put together. And that's an indication of the uh, dramatic increase in international tensions that are taking place and will continue in our understanding to, uh, to uh, develop over the next uh, period. And I think in that situation, we have to be quite clear that Trotsky's theory is absolutely relevant for today. Maybe we can rephrase it in a bit of a way. It doesn't change the meaning in any way, but maybe it just makes it a little bit more understandable or in more modern language. But I would say that in many countries, capitalism has not been able to ensure democracy. It has not been able to ensure national rights. And only the working class at the head of the poor farmers and other oppressed groups can do that by leading the struggle. The resolution of the land, the national question, 
and the economic and social questions can only be resolved by irreconcilable struggle against the capitalist system itself. And that can only be led by a revolutionary working class party. If the working class, led by a revolutionary party, implements democratic tasks, it will come into conflict with capitalist property relations, as I've already given the example from Myanmar, for example, or in Belarus, where if you had that, if you had overthrown the um, Belarusian dictator, you would also be able to guarantee your rights at work, permanent contracts, a proper wage, a pension system, and so on, which is a key part of that. If you're fighting for democratic rights, it spills over into a socialist revolution, a socialist struggle, and we return to the idea of a permanent, unbroken revolution. And a socialist revolution, it can start, as Trotsky said, on a national arena. It will then come into conflict uh, with the national limitations. Particularly in the modern world, it faces global crisis, not only the economic crisis, but the climate crisis, for example, can only be solved on, a, on a, an international basis. The COVID crisis can only be solved on an international basis. And therefore, any revolution has to spread internationally in order to succeed. And therefore, we're talking about not just a struggle in one country or another, we're talking about an international revolution. And that, of course, is why the ISA exists in order to build the forces necessary to make sure that that revolution can succeed. Thank you so much, Rob. And I think this is a brilliant message to end on because obviously we are an international organization and we are like seeing the relevance and the importance of the, the, these theories that put, I think, very accurately the way that revolutions progress and the way that generally society will progress eventually um, and it's it's crucial not just to analyze and understand it based on those ideas but also to take it as kind of like the tactics for a successful revolution and what actually needs to be done and I think we've highlighted quite well today how when these ideas are not implemented or not consciously implemented there can be really grave mistakes that are being made so thank you so much for being here rob it's always a pleasure to have you on a well to win and thank you again hope to see you very soon me too what a great episode i'm so excited we got to see rob again but now we're here for the shout out of the week and this week we are shouting out lsr which is the international socialist alternative in brazil um, they've been out in the streets all this past weekend and this past week protesting against Bolsonaro's, um, you know, murderous policies, as we talked about a few week, weeks back here on World to Win. Um, so we want to give them a, a, a shout out. They always, you know, their work is so inspirational um, in Latin America. And yeah, so we wanted to shout them out. But next week, we are going to talk um, specifically about what is going on in Latin America, in Brazil, and also the uprising in Colombia, which I've been dying to talk about um, because it's, yeah, pretty amazing, uh, you know, what workers are able to do when they organize and fight back. Um, so make sure you tune into that. Um, so next week, we will see you with our Latin American special. Yara and I will both be here again. So tune in then and make sure you subscribe to our channel and share this video. See you then. This is World to Win. Every Sunday, we broadcast with speakers from across the globe, bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving global events from a socialist perspective. 
subscribe to the International Socialist Alternatives YouTube page and click the bell to get notified when we go live for a new episode. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram because there's a lot to do and we have a world to win. Let me fight! Let me fight! Let me fight! Solidarity!